I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me again to the book of Romans, to chapter 2. We'll conclude our study of chapter 2 this morning. We'll study verses 17 through 29. Marcel? Marcel? Marcel, you got the recorder? Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 29. Here again, we're coming into Paul's great discourse on the doctrine of sin. And in chapter 1, he focused mainly on the Gentiles, or all persons on the planet who are themselves not of the people of Israel, or are not Jews. And in chapter 2, he focuses very specifically on the Jews, the religious people, the pious people who have had access not only to the promises of God, but the Word of God and the sacraments of God in circumcision and the Passover. And Paul continues his discourse toward them regarding the sins of their hearts. And I want to encourage you and remind you again that the point of Paul here is not to wag a finger of rebuke, but rather to shine a light on sin so that Gentile and Jew alike would see that they are sinners in need of a Savior. And so we turn our attention to the reading of God's Word, verses 17 through 29 of Romans chapter 2. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve of what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God, by breaking the law, for it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Thus ends this reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Let's pray together. O oh, Father in heaven, we feel our weakness. Lord, as we come to the scriptures, we feel our need for you. O oh, Lord, that we might understand these things rightly. O oh, Lord, that these things might press upon our hearts and upon our minds. O oh, Lord, that you would 
Have your way in us, O Lord, for the sake of your glory. Help us, O Lord, to understand your word and to submit to it. O Lord, search us. O Lord, reveal to us our need for a Savior. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Christian, are you right with God? If you answer that yes, let me ask you another question. Why are you right with God? Are you safe in your salvation? If you were to stand before God today, how secure do you feel? And if you were to be asked by the Father in heaven, why should we be reconciled? What would you say? You see, the question of the salvation of the heart, that's what Paul is concerned with whenever he writes to the Jewish people who were engaging at some level with the church in Rome. They're probably intermixed. They're probably worshiping together. And there is confusion between those who are Jewish, who are possibly and probably professing Christians at some level, or even those who are near them and still worshiping with them in the synagogue. After all, these are the chosen people, and he is pressing them to ask the question, what is your security? Is it in your faith? Is it in your doctrine? Is it in your identity? Where is it? Is it in your practice? Is it in the sacrament of circumcision? And so this passage pursues these questions so that the reader might see their need for Christ. The two points I want us to see this morning are firstly, that a religious life is not enough. A religious life is not enough, verses 17 through 24. And then the second thing is that you must have a changed heart. You must have a changed heart, verses 25 through 29. When we come to verse 17, this isn't distanced from what has come before in chapter 2. It's connected. It's part of Paul's logical and rhetorical pursuit, evangelistically, of these Jewish hearers. And in verse 13, he lays down this principle that here in verses 17 through 29 he pursues, and that is this. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous, but the doers of the law who are justified. And the reason Paul is concerned about this is because he knows some things about mankind. And it's specifically this truth that Paul is aware of, and that is that there is a terrible distance within every person. An 18-inch distance, a 45-centimeter distance between mind and heart. That the things we know don't always infiltrate and change the way we love or the way we live or the way we act or the affections. And so Paul is zeroing in on it like an archer that has found his target. It's the heart. And he's shooting straight for it. And he builds the argument with the Jewish religious people who he's writing for. And you'll, you'll hear me say this. I'm going to use those terms interchangeably in this sermon, Jewish religious, because he's talking about observant people, okay? It's, it's not just ethnic identity. That's a portion, but he's talking about people who show up, who pray, who know the word, and do the right thing. 
and even worship. He's talking to them. And so I want to say this has larger meaning to those who pursue religious life, not only to the ancient Jew. And in verse 17, he begins, and there are three different things he says regarding the religious life. He says, but you call yourself a Jew. But if you call yourself a Jew. And this is an important thing whenever Paul talks about this. This is self-identity. How do you identify? And in the world in which we live in today, uh, we might be asking the question, well, is this something that the ancient man would have thought? Is this something that the ancient Jewish person would have thought? Absolutely. The identity of being a Jew. It's not just a little thing. It's an enormous thing. It says things about who his God is, who he is because of the word of God, and how he lives his life. The Jewish people stood out. They were monotheist in a whole sea of pantheist. One God over all the earth, not landlocked gods. Also a God who has a high morality, who cares about what you say and what you do and what you think and what you look at and how you live your life. There is so much in the identity of a person being called a Jew. And that's the first thing Paul wants to touch upon. If you call yourself a Jew and then rely on the law. You see, that word for rely could mean also uh, to trust in, to find kind of a security in the law. And the question is, is this just the moral law of the Ten Commandments or is this the larger law of the Old Testament? I just want to say, yes, it's both. It's the whole of the Jewish life as it's impacted by a law system in their religion. And what does he mean? It's not only trusting in the identity of a Jew, being a covenant person, being someone who has received the promises of God, lived according to the law. Or the Apostle Paul could say, according to the law, blameless. Well, that's the experience of many Jews. And so Paul is touching upon it. They're identifying in. That's what they're trusting in. That's what they're relying upon. Is a life lived after the law. Not only a life identified as a chosen people. But he goes on and he describes a third aspect of their self-identification. That they are a people who boast in God. Uh, There's another way it could be translated into English. You could translate it glory in God or praise in God or brag upon God. But it's in essence the people of Israel saying, we're not like all of them. We're not a pagan people. We're the people that worship the true God of heaven. That's who we are. So the first thing that Paul is touching upon is finding security in the self-identification of a spiritual or religious person. This is something equivalent to somebody saying, I feel good with God because I'm a Christian. I feel safe before his presence because I was baptized into the church. I always was attending. I was raised in the community of faith. It's not a bad thing. It's not an untrue thing. But it's not a place of security before the righteous God of heaven. He's touching on that and he's bringing the religious Jews' attention directly to it in verse 17. 
And then in verse 18, he goes to the second point of their security or their false security. And that's theological knowledge. Look at verse 18 with me. And know his will. Paul doesn't debate it. That the people of Israel, the people of the Jews, know the will of God. How can he say that kind of thing? Because we know that the ancient Jews were not obedient to the will of God, especially regarding the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But they knew the scriptures. The scriptures are the revealed will of God. They're how he expresses his will to all of his children. In fact, the whole of creation. And he's saying regarding the religious Jews, you know the will of God. You know what pleases him. And you're finding security in that knowledge of the scriptures or of the will of the Father. And he goes on. It's not just that they know biblical truth or that they know what pleases the heart of God, but that their theological knowledge has to do with, as the English uh, translation puts it, approving of what is excellent. Does that mean they just like what's good? I mean, that's a good thing in itself. Well, if you were to translate this into other terms, it would mean to examine the truth. This speaks to spiritual or doctrinal or biblical theological discernment, where you can examine one thing against another thing, where you can root out the truth, where you can pursue it and find it and see it clear. That's what he's speaking of. It's not just a knowledge of the will of God in the word, but then it's applied uh, use in debate. He's saying to these people, you have theological knowledge with which you can debate and conclude the truth from falsehood. Is that where you put your hope? Is that where your security is? In the fullness of theological knowledge or rightness? As a Reformed Christian, this has to affect us tremendously. It ought to have us asking questions of our own hearts. Where is my hope? Is it in the test of rightness or discernment or a sensed maturity? Or is it in something else and someone else? Theological knowledge. He goes on and then expands it even more. He says, not only are they ones who approve of what is excellent, but it's because they are instructed in the law. They're knowing it. They're educated. They've sat under good teaching. Their minds understand it. They can articulate these things. And they can do it biblically. These are all good things. These are all things, whether it's the self-identifying uh, as a Jew, the Lord is, that's his deal. He's the one that called them out from uh, the land. That's, that's his thing. I'm your God and you will be my people. That's according to him. It's a, a good thing uh, to love the law of God. The scriptures uh, encourage us to do that. And it's an even greater thing to glory in God and to worship him and to stand for him and with him. It's a wonderful thing to know the will of God. It's a wonderful thing to have a discerning mind, to know the truth from falsehood. And it's a wonderful thing to be well educated in the meaning and the teaching of the word of God. But it's not enough. That's not where your security is. It can't be. And then he goes on and there's a third section of the religious life that Paul touches on in verses 19 and 20. It's the evangelistic teaching, if I can describe it 
in that way. He says, And if you are sure that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of children having the law, or having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Now, some commentators look at this and they think Paul's only pointing to uh, rabbi types or to priestly types or to scribes. But it's a thing that has direct meaning to the whole community of the people of Israel. These were a catechized people. They have a bar mitzvah, a bat mitzvah, a bet mitzvah, however you want to say it. Nonetheless, they are taught the word. They've memorized so much of the Torah by heart. They were raised singing the Psalms. It's in their head and on their heart, we hope at least. They know these things. These are a well-educated people. And so this ideal of the people of Israel being teachers and, and light to a world in darkness, that's not just a theoretical aspect that some teachers have, but rather the calling of the whole of the people of God. That's what Israel is supposed to be able to do to sanctify the nations, to evangelize the nations, to show them the truth of the God of heaven. And at various places in the Old Testament, again and again and again, you see converts. You see them actually sharing. You see the great effect happening whenever God's people stand for the truth of the God of heaven in the face of opposition. And people, even pagan people, are astounded by the light and the testimony of their faith. And what he's saying is this. That light, that usefulness, that testimony, that being a tool in the great toolbox of God, that's not your security. It can't be your security. There's a problem with any of these things, self-identity, theological knowledge, or even usefulness in evangelistic teaching being the security of the child of God. And what is it? It's the heart. All of those things are good. They're all lauded. They're all good in the face of God. They're derived from His Word and they're accomplished through His mercy, but it's not enough to make a man right with the Lord. And in verse 21, Paul turns his attention and he zeroes in on the heart and his language changes. And you've got that pronoun, that preacher's best friend of application. You... Paul says, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? And up until this point, the readers and the hearers of Paul's letter here, they're probably saying, yes, that's how we feel. Yes, you've understood us. Yes, that's who we are. Well, that got really personal really quick. That got really uncomfortable. But that's exactly what he's after. The problem is of the heart. Being a person that teaches the word and teaches the truth. Even a person that can teach children. I just want to encourage you that when you read something like that in the Bible, they're not saying that you're just teaching basics, even though that's what you teach children. But any parent, at least an honest parent, would simply know this. Any teacher would know this. It tends to mean you have to be an expert to teach children. Because they want it in most simple terms. The most understandable, the most clear, in my opinion, is really the height of teaching. Because if people can't understand you, what are you doing? You're just blowing into the wind. But he goes on. And he's touching on it. If you teach others, do you not 
teach yourself the heart. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? And do you note that Paul doesn't say you do, but rather he puts the moral weight on them, the call for self-examination. Examine your heart. That's the, that's the whole thing. They're application questions. Ask yourself. Take up these things and say simply this. Has what's in your head made it 18 inches, 45 centimeters to the heart? Are you practicing what you preach? Are you doing the things you commend? As a preacher, this is terrifying. But it's true. It's true. And for the people of God, for Christians, this is terrifying. Because what's the biggest complaint against Christians? Well, Gandhi put it into these terms. I believe in the God of Christianity if I ever really met a Christian. And what's he saying? He's heard lots of Christians talking and teaching, but he's never seen a lot of Christians living and acting according to the teaching. Now that's the accusation of a man that did not love Christ and hated the God of the Bible. However, examine your heart. Can it be said to be true of the people of God today? I think, yeah. Because the problem is the heart. These three different things he touches upon, these are the height, or maybe I could say the depth of moral decay in the life of the people of Israel. This is what they would look upon others. The stealing. You preach against stealing, but do you steal? You preach against adultery, but are you an adulterer? You hate idolatry and teach against it, yet you're robbing temples. These three things. Stealing, adultery, idolatry. Nothing would strike at the heart of a religious Jewish person, or frankly, a religious person, maybe more than these. This last aspect, this uh, idolatry, teaching against idolatry, and then robbing temples. Uh, the terminology for robbing temples is, just, in my opinion, quite relatively clear in the, in the original language. But like, what does that mean? Does it mean like robbing God of glory? Well, I think that's certainly a part of it, right? But I think this is touching upon something different because we have the same terminology being used uh, regarding uh, the Christians' interactions in Ephesus. Uh, we're given a defense against a, a local magistrate where it's said they're not robbing temples. Christians are not robbing temples. So what could this mean? Well, it may mean, probably means, that even ancient Jews were going in and pickpocketing in pagan temples, whether it was gold given, food given, maybe even an idol given, and then the heart given to these things. It's okay to steal if you're stealing from pagans, but they were in themselves and in their hearts making idols out of the things that they would steal. That's probably what Paul's touching upon whenever he speaks in that terminology. So what's the issue? And is Paul uh, sitting here in this passage and writing uh, to these people uh, just concerned to, to give them a hard rebuke? I, I don't think so. I mean, is he just calling, a, calling them a hypocrite? I mean, that's the effect. But, but I think the goal is much deeper. It's to reveal a heart. You see, there are two consequences that he gives, and it's here, um, it's here in verse 23 
and 24, two consequences of the religious professor that doesn't have a spiritually converted heart. In verse 23, and he's got these in order of importance. Verse 23, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. Do you get it? First issue is that whenever you profess the law of God and you don't live it and you break it, you transgress it, you dishonor God. That's the first aspect. You dishonor the God of heaven. You're sinning against him. It's not just against his law. It's just not uh, you know, a civil penalty. It's a divine offense. It's an offense against the God of heaven. But there's a secondary consequence, and he listed out here very clearly. And he cites for us Isaiah 52, 5. Um, in verse 24, For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That quote I gave you from Gandhi gives you an example of exactly what that means. The consequence is you lose testimony. Before people ever will listen to anything that you say with your mouth, they look at what you say with how you live. How you love or how you don't love, how you curse or how you bless, all these things. They look over your shoulder, they look onto you, and they're always asking the question, is what he believes true and can I tell it? Because they're grading our claim and the Bible's claim of truth against our lives and whether or not they've been changed whether or not they show an evidenced, converted, different heart. And so what's the issue? Is he just saying you're a bunch of hypocrites? I don't like you Jewish people. All you religious people, you're just a bunch of pie-in-the-sky, arrogant people. No. He's saying all those good things, they can't save you. Your heart's the problem. All those good things can coexist with a heart that doesn't practice it. Your heart's the issue. Your heart's what needs conversion. Your heart's the issue. It's full of sin. And even though you can speak the truth and know the truth and even do the truth at times, in its deeds, is it in your heart? In your affections? A converted person. And so what is he shouting so loudly from these handful of verses? You are a sinner, even you religious people. And you need a savior. That's what it is. And so here in these verses, he's peeled back a lot of the externals of the Jewish religion. A lot of, of the deeds, the doings, even the good things. He's saying you can't hide under them. And then in verses 25 through 29, it's the last outpost of the security of the religious Jewish person. And he wants to say to them in the whole of this, you must have a changed heart. You must have a changed heart. Because what is their last location of false assurance? It's not just in religious life. It's not just in doctrinal knowledge. It's in their identification with the sacrament, an Old Testament sacrament of circumcision. This sign, this mark that's appointed by God in the flesh of the foreskin of the males of the people of God. A sign of the promises of God. And it's as if they're saying, look, I can see it in my flesh. I'm as secure as that is on me. It's all, you just gotta, you perform the circumcision, it's it. You're, you're secure. But Paul's saying, no, no, no. 
It's not in the things you do. It's not in how you identify. And it's not even in the sign. It's not even in the sign. I want to share with you a quote. I apologize to our translator. I didn't give this to him. I should have. I'll go slow. Charles Hodge, theologian at Princeton uh, Seminary back uh, in the 1860s, I believe it was, wrote this. He says, wherever true religion declines, there is a disposition or a replacement to lay undue or undeserved stress on external rites like a sacrament, like circumcision, like baptism, like the Lord's Supper. And he says it's increased to the point of an unhealthy adoration. He says the Christian church, when it lost its spirituality, taught that water baptism washed away sins. Just the water. We're not talking about spiritual baptism. Just the water, the external aspect of it. That water baptism washed away sin. And he says how large a part of nominal Christians rest all their hope in the idea of the effectiveness of the external rite of baptism. I've been baptized. I'm safe. When I was a kid, I was baptized. Even when I made a profession, I was baptized. How much difference is that from the ancient Jewish religious person that says, I live like hell every other day of the week, but I'm circumcised. I have an unconverted heart. But I'm circumcised. It's all that matters. I'm going to get to the, to the gate of heaven. He's going to say, uh, why should you come in? And the Christian's going to say, well, I had some water on me. The Jew's going to say, well, see, I was circumcised. That's what he's touching upon. That's what Paul's going after. And Paul doesn't deny the value of circumcision. I mean, look at the passage of Scripture, verse 25. For circumcision indeed is a value. It's a sign. It's a visible word. It's intended for the man to be able to look upon it and to be driven to himself to despair over his sin and to faith in the God that loves him. To remind him that he's not his own. It also places him in the covenant community to do what? To hear the word to have the benefit of the community of the people of God and the encouragement and the education and all the things that come along with being part of the visible church. All these things. Paul says there is certainly value if you obey the law. But there's also a problem. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Sin. This sinful heart... You can cut away skin. You can bathe yourself 20 times in holy water. But if the heart doesn't change, it's as if you're not even circumcised. He goes on and proves his point, And he points again to Gentile people. Verse 26. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts or the teachings of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? The doer not just the hearers of the law. Pleasing God with the heart, not just with the externals of religion. Verse 27. 
Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. He's not saying that Gentiles are going to stand in judgment. I don't think that's the teaching, but rather this comparison. The value of the converted heart in the face of God is so much more than the external religion of an unconverted man. He goes on, he says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. You got Paul making that dichotomy. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. Verse 29, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. Spiritual circumcision, the change in the heart. You must have a changed heart. But do you notice that Paul's not saying just do it? It's not a new legalism. It's not saying you're so unholy, you just need to get it right. It's something that happens by the Holy Spirit in the heart of a man. He's saying you need a conversion. You need redemption. You've got a heart of stone. It needs to be made a heart of flesh. You have to have a, an act of God in you in the heart. In the inner man, that's what's got to happen. You need a Savior. That's what he's shouting once again at these religious people. Frogs. And he goes on in the last part of verse 29, I think gives us so much insight. He says, his praise is not from man, but from God. What pleases God? The changed heart. A converted heart. Everyone can look on circumcision. Everyone can look on baptism. All the outer aspects of religion. And we do rejoice. They are good things. They are actually ordained by God. But they cannot reconcile a man or a woman or a child. Whether it's the giving of the Lord's Supper, whether it's the application of baptism in the physical outward elements. If those things aren't blessed by the Holy Spirit and there's faith in the man changing the man, woman, or child, then there's nothing of value. It just entertains everybody else. But what about the one that judges the heart and the soul of man? And so I ask you again, Christian, are you sure you're right with God? How do you know? Is the answer, I attend church. I am doctrinally orthodox. I'm reformed. I even teach and I tithe. I've been baptized. I have, I have. But what about your heart? Examine yourself, dig down, ask yourself the questions. Where's my heart? Is there sin? Is there a distance between the mind and the heart? The things you know from the things you love? Friends, you and I need a Savior, someone we can rely upon, not just the words of the law, but the Word of God incarnate in the person Jesus Christ. One that even when we fail him, we can trust on him and know that we have a secure hope. Because there's only one right answer. There's only one reliable answer to this question. How can I be made with God, right with God? And it's this. 
because I believe in Jesus Christ who died for me, for my salvation. He died and I believe in him and so I live. No other answer is sufficient. No other answer is necessary. You believe on Christ and rest on him and the offer of his salvation. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures. Oh, Father, we thank you for the way in which they press our hearts. We ask, oh Lord, that the Holy Spirit would take the things we've heard. Oh Lord, that he will bring the weight of spiritual application. Oh Lord, that he would be saving us and convicting us and conforming us into the likeness of your Son and helping us to proclaim with hearts filled of faith, Jesus Christ is mine and I am his. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.